Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Womanhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla, and today I will be sharing with you a special interview that we recorded a couple of weeks ago about compassionate conversations. Um, this week, we are currently filled with the production of the second uh, virtual summit that we are co-organizing with Ashoka Mexico and Central America. So basically, uh, all my time has been between work and uh, finishing the, the production, um, the pre-production of this amazing event that will take place next week, September 7th to the 11th. You are more than welcome to join the uh, link for free RSVP I will list it below this episode and we will have uh, several conversations laboratories as well as um, conferences and workshops on how to include gender perspective in um, change making activities as well as social impact campaigns and how to engage in social entrepreneurship but with uh, a gender lens so I'm very very excited this is the second time that I'm co-organizing a virtual summit with Ashoka Mexico the first one we um, recorded and we pre-produced on April 2020 back when the quarantine measures began and we focused it on um, the planet and climate change and you can check that out uh, both um, events are free and the last one we already have the videos uploaded in Ashoka's uh, YouTube channel so I invite you to check that out but meanwhile if you listen to this episode prior to the September 7th 2020 I invite you to check um, and join the conversation live um, we start on September 7th and we finish on September 11th a very iconic day in the United States which we will um, engage in five laps on on education, politics, um, diversity, intersectionality, violence, peace, and economy. And I'm very, very excited to be moderating as well a roundtable on September 10th. All the events um, links I will list it down below this episode for you to join. The conversations are completely free, so I invite you to check that out. Meanwhile, I wanted to share with you a very precious conversation that we uh, recorded for Lumina, my social impact blog back in July. But I think at this point, it is important to share it also in this platform on what it means to be a woman and how can we engage in um, a very uh, stereotypically feminine um kind of emotion or feeling or um, trait, it could be said, which is compassion. How can we start uh, feeling compassion towards others? And amidst all this mayhem in terms of politics, in terms of the pandemic, in terms of the economic downturns, in terms of our, you know, the uncertainty within our lives. And I met Kimberly Lowe. She is a conflict resolution specialist. Um, she is Asian American and she joined Diane Musho as well as Gabriela Meningale to uh, write this book 
called Compassionate Conversations, How to Speak and Listen from the Heart. So I will be sharing with you the whole interview. It's an hour-long interview uh, speaking with Kim on the different layers of cultural understandings. How can we um, tend bridges uh, and build bridges instead of tearing each other down and you know, engaging in conflict resolution practices and not choosing not to engage in violence towards one another. I hope that you find it as enlightening as I did. And I invite you to check out all the work that Kimberly is doing as well as Diane and Gabrielle. They, the three of them are doing amazing work. So without further ado, here is the full interview uh, shared uh, for our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you like it. We are having here Kimberly Lowe. She is the uh, co-author of Compassionate Conversations, How to Speak and Listen from the Heart, a book that is already released this week and I'm very excited to learn more about. And she co-authored this book with Diana Musho Hamilton and Gabrielle Menegali. Kim, thank you so much for your time and for being here. Thank you. Really, really happy to talk with you. Thank you. Kimberly, I want to talk to you about how do you start this journey on conflict resolution and, you know, engaging with compassion? Well, <laughs> that's a great question to start. Um, honestly, I think for me, it's always come from a personal place. I have really wondered in my own life how I can really um, better show up to my relationships because I noticed how much suffering, conflict and you know, uncomfortable differences was causing for me, even in sort of family of origin growing up. And so I think I had these questions. At some point, I trained as a lawyer in London and Singapore, and I was very passionate about human rights and those kinds of ways of making change. And soon I realized that I don't think I like myself so much in that role. Um, advocacy and education and legal um, you know, legal evolution is very important. And yet I felt like this not quite right for me. It didn't necessarily tie in with my, um, my, say my spiritual beliefs or my metaphysical wanderings about what this whole thing is for anyway, that are really close to my heart. And so at a certain point I made a shift and I became more serious about conflict transformation, mediation. What does it mean to stand between parties and actually facilitate a more productive and peaceful resolution and just like a fair resolution. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say that was some of the, the paving stones in. Um, I did some work in peace building and mediation research, um, seeking to develop the peace policy within the United Nations, um, that kind of work, which is super interesting and very quite heady at times. But it meant that I got to speak and interview phenomenal peace builders around the world doing this work all over the globe. And I felt, you, um, you mentioned before about the common, the culture wars. I, I could also feel a culture of those who were serving this humanity through working with, with conflict and, and violence and unrest. So, um, so I take, took a lot of inspiration from them. This is 
so interesting because in a time when we were talking about like international relations and peace building efforts all around the world, one would think that it's very logical. It's very rational, like the way that we approach to conflict resolution. And, you know, in a way, not all of the uh, conflict resolution techniques um, include the hard. <laughs> and um, how, how do you engage with that you know, knowing that maybe we need to feel more and talk less. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that is such a great inclusion. And I'm really glad that you bring that in right at the beginning, including this vehicle of our bodies, our hearts. This is, yeah, it can't, it can't just be a mental cognitive analytic thing where we just weigh it up until we find the right answer. There's tremendous wisdom in our bodies that can guide us in relationship so that together we can become something more. And it does call on, you know, virtues like compassion and mercy and humility, um, you know, and, and, and so, so I think opening my heart to all of that has certainly been a big part of my personal journey and my healing journey in my life, like including the heart. There are things which um, are very painful, you know, for each of us. And I've come to realize that, um, working with people where I'm in, inviting them into the space of like, who else can we become when we bring our full faculty online? Yeah, yes, using our mind, of course, like we have that at our, for our use, but also, yeah, including more, more of the heart. And what does it mean to seek a connection that goes beyond what our rational mind might think is possible? Um, so big yes to heart. <laughs> That's so amazing. And, you know, with this book, something that I was reading was that you develop a framework in the team um, with Sam Buddhism and integral theory. Can you explain a bit like what is what are those and what led you to combine both approaches? For sure. Um, yes, those are two huge influences in the book. And one of the reasons why I think it's offering something quite unique, because um, I mean, there's many things that I could <clears throat> try and say about Zen and Integral, but maybe about this meeting point with the book. I think what we're seeking to do is give the readers an experience of greater freedom so that when they're in difficult moments, things that are challenging them and, you know, pushing us into, well, I just want this or safety or, you know, kind of the antagonistic combative mode. Instead, in that moment, to recognize that some of the limitations or the conditionings that we're putting on that into the bringing into the moment don't necessarily need to be there when we can begin to flex and flow, learn to take up other perspectives, learn to see things from a different way so that we can tap the, you know, there's a lot of wisdom and intelligence in conflict. And we have to learn to like be willing to go there, I think is a simple way of putting it. Um, so we think Zen, specifically um, mindfulness meditation practice, puts us into in touch with reality as it is. We clear away the distortions, the stories, the preferences, the, you know, we work with our biases, our conditioning. So, so as to seek a view that is not clouded, it's actually clear. Reality is informing us. We can become clear vessels, we might say. So that's kind of the Zen inspiration and maybe just a word about integral um, Diane, um, our, our, our co-author is, she used to work at the Integral Institute with Ken Wilber. And so she has a very close relationship with him and, uh, he's one of her main teachers. So a lot of the ways that I've been introduced into the work is through her 
condensing of the messages when it comes to say conflict and facilitation and leadership and and coaching and just interpersonal relationships and so it gives people a framework through which to organize some of our thoughts at least that's what it's offered me um for example the idea that we have an egocentric self when we come into the world we're you know just coming to know who we are as three-year-old, five-year-old, just like tactile beings, you know, we're just developing our sense of self. And then at a certain point, we can begin to extend that outwards, maybe circles of friends, caring about what they think becomes more, well, actually doing this with the family, merging with the family, finding, and we could say the family, the tribe, the community, the high school, you know, cool kids, who the football team, um, that's an ethnocentric way of relating. Beyond that, we can go to a world-centric where we actually start to take in a greater whole. The United Nations begins to form. People are able to stand up for environmental rights, for, you know, rights for the earth in and of itself, independent of human beings. That's a very world-centric perspective. Um, and then beyond that, we can actually go to a cosmic-centric perspective where we're able to view all of this, include it, feeling compassion for the shadow and the grief of what it is to be an ethnocentrism and find yourself in a intergroup war, you know, where tribe is against tribe, like this does still happen, it plays out. And you can hold compassion from the cosmic centric self that acknowledges that all of this human life, our very existence here is kind of an, a phenomenal miracle in and of itself. And it does not discount from the fact that it is devastating at times. <laughs> And, you know, and it, it, we, are, we are imperfect beings here on this imperfect and beautiful and stunning planet. And so integral theory for me has allowed me to understand maybe why we're, we're crossing wires at certain levels. Like you can't, from a world-centric perspective, demand that everyone else meet you there. We, devolve, we evolve and change based on our circumstances of birth, and what our, our dharmas are, what worlds we're called into. This is different for us as human beings, but one thing is definitely true, which is that we're all evolving together. Um, so integral also has that emphasis, evolutionary um, sort of way of thinking. Um, so many questions that I want to ask you without, you know, dimension. Um, and one yeah, of the- great questions, by the way. <laughs> I, I, I just love this topic. I'm like, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, you know, it's very interesting that this book comes at this time of, you know, pandemic, of Black Lives Matter in the United States and also worldwide. The call has been, you know, worldwide to pay attention to social injustices, to pay attention to racial justice and many other things. Um, but before I, you know, ask you about the book now and its relevance now, I want to ask you on the beginning, what was happening mm -hmm. when that book was, you know, the notion of let's come together and, you know, uh, share experiences because you both, the three of you are very, you know, specialists in different fields and, you know, you have already a very big history of working in different countries. What was happening then that led you to see, hey, we need a book on this. Let's, let's get together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so at that time, when the, it was early 2018, and just to give you markers for where we were at, I was in New York and working on peace building research with the Quaker United Nations office at the time. And um, 
Gabe was in Salt Lake City and he was doing a lot of organizational development work. Um, and he also has a background in education. So I come from more conflict resolution and he's coming more from education. Diane comes from more psychology and then just this deep well as a Zen teacher and a facilitation expert um, teacher. Uh, and she was also in Utah. And I had been, I collaborated with them, a, I think a little bit in like workshops and things and been in each other's orbit. And I was going closer with Diane, like as a teacher. And um, I, one day for myself, I, I was really starting to feel my tensions with um, my circumstance and maybe this, what I perceived to be the state of the world at that time um, in New York going in and out of the UN and everything is just urgent, you know, like each issue, it's like each, you know, how we have a day specifically for a certain kind of cause. It's every day, you know, and uh, so I was feeling that urgency and it occurred to me that I wanted to begin writing based on my own thoughts, ideas, um, ways of making sense of the world. And I was ready to perhaps outgrow a little bit from the previous structure which was people hiring me to write to support some kind of you know policy development or research building or, or you know program support um so i had that it was kind of cool i had that realization of myself it's kind of like empowering you know like oh i'm ready to self-author great awesome <laughs> don't know now what but two weeks later or one week later diane sent an email to me and I remember lead, reading it at 8 p.m. at night and I was kind of like, well, you know, sleepy. And, and she invited me to co-author that book with her and Gabe. And she said that Shambhala had reached out to her. This is her third book with Shambhala. So she has an existing relationship with them. They reached out to her and said in the midst of these times, kind of, you know, in that 2018 version of what you're saying now, look at the state of things, these are particular urgencies. Um, would you like to write a book, Diane? And she said, yes, but I want to work with people who are different to me. And so she oh, looped cool. me in and then she, you know, she looped Gabe in and together. Um, so that was the birth of it. We started getting on calls. We did the whole thing over Google Docs and like Zoom and Skype and messages. It's a wonder, you know, how brilliant that we can. And then um, I got to do more in-person work with them in, through 2019 and this year. And so, um, yeah, it's been a marvelous journey. <laughs> Wow, and today, like, coming to 2020, like, how the the book, did, did it change when the pandemic hit? I mean, were, were there new chapters to be included to, you know, um, include more information for this time? Or was it, you know, there's this saying that, you know, the universe prepares yourself for, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> this kind of event? So, I don't know if it was leading you to, you know, reach 2020 and then come out you know like the book needed to come out at this time well i mean I, i i trust that there's some flow underneath all of this that is you know giving these crests and waves and i um we actually had to wrap up the like finalize the manuscript in um oh may 2019 so actually this time last year so so in a way it feels to me, I feel my vulnerability in releasing it to the world because 
it isn't actually a tailored response necessarily for these times this year with the scrutiny around the issues that you mentioned with our experience of the pandemic and with our experience of these like the tensions and the violence you know and the incredible like inequity of our society still along racial and identity lines like the poignancy of 2018 sometimes to me it's like it's so vivid because it is the now and I think in 2019 we were still slightly more minded to read say at least in this country like the national discourse to read it more around the political line because Donald Trump had come in and certain things were being moved around, which at that time there was more volatility around that, the more, you know, thinking about it as the people, you know, grassroots and all the interwebbings and then macro levels of government. And I think the conflict, you know, structurally speaking, was more targeted that way. Right now we have, we have hostility and violence, which is happening in horizontal lines too, in addition to what was there before, you know? So, yeah. so today's culture wars, <laughs> um, there are three stages that are like uh, outlined in the, the research. The first is the traditional or the ethnocentric that you were mentioning before, the scientific or the modern world centric, which is the rational and the postmodern and multicultural diversity. Um, mm -hmm. They are coming together and in, inter becoming intertwined in you know in clashes or in coming together, but I also think that there's something you know connected to generations as well you know with age. Mm -hmm. um, how 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 can we with this new framework of understanding that even. I think it's, you know, human basic, like listening <laughs> to each other <laughs> and, and choosing something different to violence and trying to impose our views on other people can, you know, maybe instead of clashing these different views of the world, probably tend for build bridges. Yeah. Is, yeah. is there like a way that you have found with this framework that it can lead to that, to building bridges? Yeah, it's, um, it's such a, it's such a, in a way, it's a quite a profound kind of question. And, and yet the, the conclusions that we come to are actually quite simple. Um, I think, I think that the culture wars, and you set it out so well, the, these, these layers and the intertwining um, and the importance of building bridges. I think we're really in a moment where we have this potential to grow together. I think what will support us is if we have a common intention. So whether you're coming from an ethnocentric level or a world-centric level our intentions must at least point in the same direction you know what i mean um of course we have our own specific loyalties that lie we have our own loyalties these are our priorities that's the agenda we demand for when we're given the mic um that's still the case and there is something 
quite amazing that I've, I've, I've actually witnessed um, like a few of the best facilitations, say in a group, where you're working with different people who could be representing these different um, perspectives, as you're saying, those identities. And I think that the really skillful facilitators allow us to concentrate into the importance of the relationship now between those people, because there's so much that can be pulled in from each of their backgrounds and in everything that's informing them, whatever they're bringing to this negotiation or conversation, you know, we don't know what that meeting point is for. If the facilitator can guide both of them to explicate an intention that's powerful for them and those things can complement, then we have something here. If it's the, if it's the opposite, then play like the, our ability to influence the process goes down. So take this to the extreme example. And I'm really like, I'm, I don't have all the answers to this. I'm living with these questions live. Like how do you engage someone who is so different in their view of their world Maybe they are completely nihilistic. Maybe they are completely self-sacrificing in their own body for what they think this life is for and who they are seeking to serve. It, of course, like it's, you can't just casually make some small talk and hope for the best. This is going to take profound, profound listening to really even begin to understand what it might be like for someone who's just so completely opposed. And, and we don't like to listen. We don't, and we think it signals agreement, our bodies react, you know, it can be hard. And yet it's vital, it's absolutely vital. If we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to drop and empty out, even just temporarily, to go into the space of giving the other person the dignity of being heard. You know, if you don't, build trust on some level by saying I humanize you I'm humanizing you because I'm listening to you the energy is not going to be one which is going to be open to being worked with and then after you've listened to them you have a you have a moment then where you you thank them for expressing their point of view if you feel that way for the opportunity it gave you to drop in with them and learn something else maybe and then also you can ask them a question would you be willing to hear another perspective on it that's the entry point into dialogue. And so often we don't get there. We sell ourselves short, I think, by, you know, just like falling into the patterns. And I can, I know it because I've been there. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm in this world. <laughs> yeah. What, why is it that we have stopped listening? What, sorry, what do you mean? Yeah. Why, why, why is it, do you think that we have stopped listening okay uh, i don't know if it's something cultural or is the times or i don't know <laughs> yeah it's a good question i mean i think in or ordinary times um i think naturally we don't we don't like listening because the ego sense of self and i don't mean this diminishingly it's i just mm -hmm. think it's a feature of identity um, doesn't want to be disrupted by other points of view, by other explanations, because the ego sense of self is, likes to maintain homeostasis. And we talk about this in the book. Um, we don't really like to hear points of view that disrupt our coherent way of making sense of the world. 
so that's under normal times and our our nervous systems are not trained to cope well with that kind of disruption we take sometimes when it's difference when we hear too much difference sometimes it can come off as a threat to us that's how we receive it you know in the amygdala and we can go into fight or flight you know and become triggered um and then we literally cannot listen because we, you know our blood is not going to our the generous prefrontal cortex part of our mind we're actually going towards survival mode and so that's why we we can't listen beyond a certain point so if people get to that point it's really important we work with our bodies our physiologies to soothe the nervous systems to breathe and actually you know give ourselves a better chance um, than trying to work in that activated place um so that's normal times <laughs> now or intense times <laughs> heightened you know everything just turned up a little notch um i think that when we are coping with stress to our routines and ways of making sense with the world um relationships you know um the way that we work and function you know now a lot of us via screens and alone um all of these things are are major disruptions you know the, the stress and the heartbreak we might feel politically and around the conflicts that we see around us and that we might be personally activated by you know it's it's de it's devastating and um so we're under stress and when we are under stress there we have we have um kind of two options if you will when the system is shaken up we can either transform we can break free of those things that have previously held us back and find a new way to adapt to the new reality. And these are what we would, you know, these are healthy species that can adapt or we regress. We go back, we dig our heels in, we say, no, the old way worked, let's just do that harder. That to me is a regression. It's like, you know, and this, you can imagine this playing out on the societal level of a government saying, no, control happens this way, you know, and there's like a rigidity to it. And that could be, I mean, some leadership is strong, but some of that leadership is also just regression, like, because the people don't know what better to do. So we have an opportunity to transform. And so I think when we don't listen, let's take this practice, like, let's inspire ourselves to transform in the moment, prepare ourselves well. The more embodiment practices we can do, learn to listen to ourselves, learn, learn to listen to the negative self-talk or the repetitive self-talk that we will often have in our minds, learn to show ourselves compassion there. That's a great starting point. Uh, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of meditation, yoga, dance, swimming, things get, that get me into a flow state, um, wrestling with dogs, like whatever it is, you know, just like, that's really healthy for us. That's really good for us. And that'll help our nervous systems in future learn to metabolize back to center points when we can breathe well in those moments and remind our bodies of a freer feeling. Yeah. You said something that really like made me think about like the whole world conflicts and also interpersonal conflicts. Um, you said that our intentions, if we point them into one direction, we can move you know, for uh, any progress, create any progress, which, you know, it reminds me the first time that I took like a non-violence training, uh, non-violence communication training, they ask us, you know, for like have a conflict, like some bring a problem into the table, something that happened, a scenario, and then ask yourself, what was the need that you were facing back there that wasn't met? 
And what was the need of the other person that you were not meeting and why was the conflict escalating, you know? And it made me understand that I didn't know what was my need back then. Like, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's because, you know, in Western cultures, we are not taught emotional intelligence or like we are not, you know, in, in educated to understand what is it that we need and what is it that we feel that we externalize in a defense mode or in an attack mode to other people whenever we hear something that doesn't ring true but we don't know why it's just you know we 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 go to violence you know instead of listening or instead of discerning if that was an offense or not you know um and that led me also to think about the huge intention of other conflicts, you know, in, in worldwide. <laughs> um, we, we have big conflicts between nations and between groups. And if, if two people are not understanding or are not, um, how is it, conscious of their needs, I don't know if groups <laughs> could be extremely conscious of what their needs are to sit on a table on a discussion table with the other part uh, that they have a conflict with and you know work it through you know um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so is it something that we maybe um and is there an invitation to maybe learn something and, and you know to, to avoid these kind of wars, <laughs> scenarios? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, um, what you're, when you, when you're describing that, I'm, it's like bringing different things to mind and one of them is on shadow mm -hmm. and the, uh, you know, the idea that there, if there's something in our unconscious, which we are not conscious of, it's going to be played out in shadow. It will find a way of expressing uh, itself in our lives. That's true on the individual and the collective level. Um, Michael Mead, if you know of his work, he's done some really, he's done, uh, I can share something with you sometime, um, where he talks about the shadow in the, that's playing out in the collective and how you're, you're right to link the idea of its consciousness that we want of, of who we are and how we're expressing ourselves and, and how we're engaging sort of in the personal realm. Um, and so I think that a big piece is around awareness, training our consciousness, inviting our consciousness into more expansive domains so that we can include more. I can, I can see myself from other perspectives. I can take in feedback from the world. You know, people are always giving me feedback. The world's giving me subtle feedback. And if I can learn to listen to that, I can build my, my self-awareness. And so um, part of the work that I do right now that I particularly love is I coach women in negotiation. So being able to help them tune in to fundamentally who they are and understand their legitimate needs and why they want what they want and become very anchored in that unapologetically, you know, that's actually, that's very, very important. We have to learn to take that first person perspective if we're not able to do that for ourselves, there are ways in which um, I think, well, I just think it's an innate need of the ego self to have that sovereignty, to ask for food when you are hungry in all the complex ways that that, you know, looks like in the world. 
um, in romantic relationships and domestic personal relationships, learning to ask for our emotional needs to be met, you know, is a huge domain in which we can practice voicing, owning, being unashamed about what our needs are, and then asking the other person to co-create a solution with you. Because nonviolent communication, right? Well, our needs are, are valid and we all have them. We're human beings. And um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, yeah, well, but yeah. it felt like, yeah, owning our needs was important, is important. Yeah. And doing the shadow work so that we can find out what's on the other side, what we're not seeing. Just wanted to add that. How can we like, as a collective, work on the shadow collective? I mean, if, because some people are taking charge on their shadow self, but like as a collective, I didn't know that there was like a shadow of the collective. Is, is there a way that we can work together to work with the shadow? Or good question. I I imagine that um, I imagine that there would be yes, and in some ways, there might be moments where the group needs to individuate because there might be different because you know the shadow the collective shadow is going to be no more than the a collective of you know just humans like doing their thing. So there's some of those pieces where maybe there's a significant overlap. We notice that people who live and have these kinds of social conditions you know, maybe what's in shadow or they enjoy a certain kind of privilege, maybe what's in shadow for them is the truth that, you know, what we might think of as unfair labor on not well recompensed labor is actually propping up that way of being and what might be in shadow for them is maybe they don't want to feel guilt. So they're like, oh, no, 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 they're fine. But this is better than what they had back there anyone whatever like whatever narrative they've I'm completely you know yeah. hypothesizing here that just something that was in shadow it's like you could assume that quite a lot of people might have tend to have that response because we also probably enculturate it certain kind of um jokes are a great one for tapping into the collective psyche like what is that thing that's you know not being said and and maybe collective shadow work would look like a process of unpacking together exploring it coming into relationship with it um there's a resource I'd be very happy to share with you that where Diane is guiding a shadow process, um, which we just recorded on last Friday, and it's excellent. You can journal alongside it so that if anyone listening to this wants to have a, an experience of like, well, what is it like to look at my own shadow? That would be a great way to just open into it for an hour. Well, that would be amazing if you could share us with that, like that link. And um I know that you have upcoming events, the essentials and a workshop. Um, can you tell us a bit more? Yeah, totally. Thanks for mentioning about that because those kind of things sometimes I'll forget when I'm you know, <laughs> on the call. Um, so the, the free call is like, welcome, welcome everybody. We just want to share some of the main messages about our book and the ethos that we're coming from just to invite you into our world. What do we mean when we talk about compassion conversations? You know, what are, what would the essentials be? What would you really want to know if you just had that little block of time to come and spend that with us? Um, the biases, power and shadow workshop, I suppose you might think of as, is part of our response to this current time. We're working a lot, you know, with, with power and injustice, discrimination, and these things are bigger than us. So how our culture adapts to interact with that and reshape it and change it and let you know, let something else be reborn from what we're learning about everything and feeling about everything. It's like, you know, our ability to do that, we have, um, 
we have just such an awareness that like it's in the fronts of people's minds like how do we work with with power in the room even for you know for say you and i having a conversation with one other person how does our experience of power shift what we can say and can't say mm -hmm. um one thing just to say briefly is that when we name it when we become conscious to your theme earlier of becoming conscious of it when we name it in the room it helps to take some of the sting and the weight out of it and then we can find ways to actually use it for benefit even at times you know um, by working consciously with power and helping people who hold positions of power be conscious about how they are doing that um, so yeah th that's the workshop and that will be a three-hour workshop and all people who register for the um the free call can have a discount on the workshop and i explicitly invite anyone who wants to attend for whom cost might be a barrier to please reach out to any one of us and you know it's more important to us that people attend and get to feel like if they want to have this conversation here's more here's a place um can i just mention one more thing actually that yeah. we've got coming up it's not um I think we're still putting some finessing touches on it, but from September 12th to November 14th, we're doing a 10 week online course where we're really going to look at the curriculum of compassionate conversations, yeah. um, deeper dives into essential skills like, you know, the listening, the talking straight, um, definitely some of the things that I've mentioned um, in this call, like working with power, working with biases and shadow and um, social privilege. Uh, we definitely also oriented, there's a chapter there on the heart and resilience um, and the fact that we're in it together. So we take that 10 week course as like for those people who want to come on the full, the full journey. journey. Yeah. That's so amazing. Um, we are going to have the links uh, listed below the video. Uh, so anybody can check also uh, Kimberly's Facebook page and all the information back there. Um, I want to finish off with two last questions. Um, the first sure. one is um, regarding what you were saying about like seeing the conflicts in different levels, you know, like the personal, the ethno, the um, community, the nation and the world and the cosmo, the cosmovision. Um, mm -hmm. It's very interesting because I'm gonna play here like a bit of you know science astrology that we are like changing eras between peace Pisces era to Aquarius era. So people are saying, uh, I mean, experts on astrology <laughs> are saying that um, changing from eras means that also the way that people relate to one another will change and. We are seeing it now also with, you know, all the rising tensions in the United States and worldwide um, in terms of before conflicts were between states and between nations and to, you know, impose certain ideologies, certain religions, certain ways of governance. And in this new era, I mean, in the beginning of this new era, the conflict will be between people, you know, like just you know, and we are seeing it on the internet, how people are like <laughs> shredding each other and canceling each other out and, you know, having these weird tactics and, you know, between person to person, just because of if, if people have a different opinion, you know, they're like what you were saying before, they're not ingrained to listen, but rather to defend 
or to protect their views and try in a way to impose that view to the other or cancel the other if it doesn't match. And um, mm -hmm. my question is, the more that people ascend and raise awareness on their states of status or they become very spiritual, etc., the less that they want to be engaged I mean, this is a pattern, of course, there are other people that will do it, but the less yeah. that they're engaged in other um, groups, you know, they, they distance themselves. If they reach the cosmovision of the world and the meditation state and, you know, be very high, they don't necessarily want to go to marches or, or like, you know, get into one-on-one -on -one, uh, disputes because they are on another level. Um, and the same, you know, with other um, different, um, uh, how is it, levels of awareness. Um, mm -hmm. How can we, I don't know if it's meant to unite in a way, but mm -hmm. perhaps not alienate. Yeah, I don't know if there's a question there, but it's just a conversation yeah. that I was just wondering about. Sure, maybe let me just reflect for a moment what yeah. I heard you say in there that felt like um, felt like something for sure. Um, you were at, just at the end there. You were saying that you know there can be this tendency, perhaps, for people once they've become you know more dwelling in the spiritual domain that they're somehow less activated. They're not on the streets engaged in that same way and that being i mean that i i take i take some issue with it not just to say like i'm i'm mad at it but as in like yeah i have questions yeah. i have questions about why that could be happening um from my perspective there's also another conversation that i think is important which is what is our work to be done we each bring a unique set of gifts and abilities to the world and to me I care very much about public direct public protest and direct action at in the right moments that is what our societies need to catalyze and be a demonstration of change I'm very very for that I used to do a lot of um, research in nonviolent social movements back in a few years ago and it just got me so like, so like excited to be part of these you know like these these lineages of humans who are brave and so I'm, I'm a big fan of doing that and I also acknowledge that we tend to sometimes judge ourselves by extrinsic measures so it shouldn't be about posting a social media post which pro proves you are at the protest if that is the quality of the intention behind the action is to prove or to show something off then there's something not quite right about that and I would say that if if it's a level of spirituality that is could be part of the i mean so many things are connected right but if that's part of the where someone feels somewhat above it or like they're not they're like you know kind of too blissed out to like be with the reality of the suffering then to me there's something i would have major questions about how is their nature of their practice where is it tying them into reality because from where i come from I, I take, I, maybe I should be explicit about that, like in the Buddhist, um, specifically the Mahayana Buddhist, which is a kind of Buddhism that Zen is within, it's about the liberation of all. It was never about just one monk piercing through. It was always for the merit of all beings, you know, all sentient beings, all our relations. 
Um, so that there's the ideas of the bodhisattva who will hold off from enlightenment so that she can reach down the mountain, extending an arm and helping whoever's there up to meet her so that people can, th so that all beings can cross the threshold together. So this is the, the kind of, maybe you could say like part of the story that's alive in me and the ethos of how I work and, and I don't get it right all the time. And there are days where I feel like I'm not doing enough you know, and there are days where I'm judging myself and like, what do people think of me? And I, and I just, and what I'm growing to understand is like what my heart is calling to and telling me what is my work to do, then that's the right place. Like, it's okay that, you know, some people are writing books and some people are caring for people in nursing homes and other people are out on the streets and some people are hand making, you know, protection for protesters to help them. And, you know, and some people are talking to their local post office human and just trying to, gain some mutual dialogue and some people are navigating like power at the highest levels and representing the voices of so many. Um, so I think wherever our work, like where are we being called? That's where I get kind of curious about because I think we each get to live our dharma. Um, and I hope this language makes sense to, you know, like the people who are listening. It's just been a great source of inspiration and resource in my life. Yeah. What are the biggest lessons that people can take away from the book and where can we find it and the dates of, once again, the dates of the events and cool. so looking forward to learn more. Amazing. Um, I think it, because maybe just on today and the nature of our conversation and where I'm feeling, I think that the main, um, the main message ethos that I would love for people to know about this book is that we are in this together, you know, that, that we can't leave anyone out. Like our compassion has to include all. And that's really hard for us. And it's a great honor to be a human being alive in these times. So why not give it a try? <laughs> um, so that, that's the book. And uh, yeah, upcoming, uh, where can people find me? So my website is www.kimberlylow.com. Um, I'm available. You can reach out to me th there through contact box. Um, I'm a little bit irregular on my email list, but you're very welcome to join. I'd love to be in touch with people who care about these things. Um, I'm on the socials. I'm on Instagram and Facebook at the Kim Lowe. And I'm on LinkedIn, something like Kimberly dash Lowe. And I think I may use the Twitter once in a blue moon. Um, but yeah, so I really welcome anyone to connect with me. The book is available on like Amazon and Shambhala, Barnes and Noble, um, IndieBound, which supports independent booksellers, Penguin, um, those sorts. And it's available on Kindle version, but not Audible yet. We'd love to do that really soon because I mean, I would love to do it. And, <laughs> and then the free call is on the 31st of July, I believe. And the um, Biases, Power and Shadow workshop is on the 7th of August. Mm. And then our 10-week course starts on September 12th. Perfect. And yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to connect with, with people who are listening to this. And, and if there's any questions, you know, maybe I can, maybe you can alert me if there's things in the thread here, people want to learn about anything else specifically. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Kimberly for your time and looking forward to seeing what this 
book will inspire all the compassionate conversations it will inspire in the United States and worldwide because you need more of us. Thank you so much. I so appreciate spending this time with you. And this is like, God, if you one of my favorite interviews today, I've loved this connection. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Yay.